Hello, campus cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, higher education professional and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. In February of 2010, a distraught biology professor at the University of Alabama Huntsville opened fire at a staff meeting, killing three colleagues and critically wounding three others. The professor, Dr. Amy Bishop, taught at least five different courses in the Department of Biology, and she had been employed at the university since 2003. In 2009, six years after she was hired, Dr. Bishop went through a rigorous tenure application process and review, but her tenure was ultimately denied in March of 2009. This meant that her teaching appointment at the University of Alabama Huntsville would not be renewed when her contract ended the next year in 2010. Bishop appealed the Tenure Committee's decision to the university administration, but that too was denied. Nearly a year later, Bishop plotted a revenge attack against her department. This episode is titled, Tenure Denied, A Professor's Revenge. So without further ado, let's get started. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024. This is part two of Chronicle 65. Last week, we left off right after we discovered that Amy Bishop and her husband, Jim, had a baby boy in 2001, who they named Seth after Amy's brother. So we will pick right up from where we left off. So if you guys have not listened to part one of Chronicle 65, you definitely need to go back and listen to that or this part will not make much sense. (laughs) So let's just pick up right where we left off. Um, in part one. As a mother, Amy Bishop was described as quite loving, although perhaps a little bit high strung. Like she allowed her children to eat only organic food for a while, and she encouraged them to play instruments at a young age, just as she did. Plus, she often worried whether they were being challenged adequately in school. But after earning her PhD at Harvard, she began to boastfully tell people about it as if she were bragging or placing herself on a royal pedestal, not only because of the great achievement of a terminal degree, but also because that degree came from a prestigious Ivy League institution. So between being a high-strung, worrisome mom and her desperate need to achieve and be recognized for her prestigious degree, well, the two characteristics were a recipe for disaster. For example, Amy and Jim took the family to an IHOP one Saturday morning in 2002, and Amy requested a booster seat for baby Seth, but the waitress kindly informed her that the last one had just been used by another party in the restaurant. In response, Amy became loud and aggressive. She screamed, quote unquote, but we were here first. 
Then she walked over to the woman who was using the booster seat for her child, and Amy began to yell at the woman and cuss her out. She repeatedly yelled, quote unquote, I am Dr. Amy Bishop. This caused the manager of IHOP to approach Amy and ask her to leave, a request to which Amy complied, but not before first walking back over to the woman with the booster seat and punching her in the head. Following this altercation, Amy was arrested, but the woman, I guess, decided not to press charges or something, so the assault never appeared on Amy's record. In her spare time, I guess, Amy also dabbled in a little bit of fiction and poetry writing. She even wrote three dark thrillers that were never officially published, but interestingly enough, all three of the books included a protagonist who was much like herself, a woman of Greek background with a dream of an illustrious career in science who was haunted by the death of a child she once knew and loved. Here's the thing though, part of the reason that her books were never published is because she had very little patience for constructive criticism. For instance, one writer she worked with, Lenny Cavallaro, said, quote, When I worked with her, I found she was always within striking distance of the edge, end quote. Essentially, those who worked with her on her fiction writing described the experience as painful because she always seemed like she was about to explode. And rather than trying to get better and hone and refine her craft, she would instead brag about being distantly related to famous novelist John Irving, who wrote popular books like The Cider House Rules and The World According to Garp. Like, I guess she thought that would automatically give her clout and writing skill, apparently. Anyway, in the immediate few years after receiving her PhD, Amy stayed at Harvard as a postdoctoral researcher and instructor. In 1996, Dr. Hugo Gonzalez Serratos collaborated with her on a research paper while they were both working in the cardiology department at a hospital associated with Harvard. When the paper was complete, Dr. Gonzalez Serratos recalled that Amy flew into a rage. He said, quote, she was very angry because she was not the first author. She broke down. She was extremely angry with all of us. She exploded into something emotional that we never saw before in our careers, end quote. So just as a side note, first author meant like she wasn't listed as the first author of the paper. Like her name wasn't first in whatever publication it was published in. His name was first. And so that made her mad. And after that, her contract at Harvard was not renewed. So she began applying for teaching positions at colleges and universities around the country. She eventually accepted her first official tenure track position as a faculty member at the University of Alabama Huntsville, or UAH. In 2003, then, Amy and Jim and their four children relocated from Massachusetts to Alabama so Amy could begin work as a faculty member in the Department of Biology. But in order to secure the job, Amy padded her resume, which gave the impression that she had worked at Harvard two years longer than she really did. Also, I think it's important to mention here that Amy was the primary breadwinner in their family. Apparently, Jim worked off and on as a computer engineer, primarily in laboratory jobs he secured with Amy's help. But from what I gather, he never kept a steady full-time job. And Amy even told one colleague that Jim was just too smart to work. Um, okay. When the family relocated to Alabama, though, Amy and Jim began to collaborate on the invention of an automated cell incubator. The New York Times described the invention as a device that would keep certain types of cells, like nerve cells, alive longer, which would make experiments much easier. 
In 2008, as the University of Alabama was trying to market the new device, the then president of the university, Dr. David Williams, told a local newspaper that he expected the invention would, quote unquote, change the way biological and medical research is conducted. But as Amy Bishop started focusing more on getting patents for the device rather than writing research papers, her publication record started majorly lacking, particularly in comparison to her other colleagues at UAH. And this was all despite heated warnings that failing to publish more academic research could jeopardize the possibility of her receiving tenure. Okay, so tenure, for those who might not know, is something that is highly sought out by academic researchers and faculty at institutions of higher education. It essentially guarantees your job for as long as you want it. As in, it's really hard to get fired or dismissed from a position once tenure is secured. And in all cases, tenure is only given to those who prove their worth and meet specific standards and criteria, such as publishing a certain amount of academic research papers. So as you can imagine, it is usually a very rigorous and time-consuming review process. But tis the nature of academia and higher education. Anyway, in the classroom, Amy's performance wasn't much better. For instance, she would occasionally inform her students at UAH that they were not as bright and intelligent as the students she taught at Harvard. Other times, she would abruptly dismiss graduate students from her lab, while other students requested to be transferred out of her classes, sometimes even to other departments and majors. According to a specific anecdote reported by the New York Times, Amy dismissed one graduate student from her lab in 2006. The student promised to return some notebooks and a set of keys the next day, but Amy had no patience and called campus police that night to report the item stolen. Obviously, the student filed a grievance against her. What's more is that other students in her classes said they found her so unresponsive that they signed a petition complaining about her work ethic in the classroom. Among other things, the petition alleged that her test questions went far beyond the material that was covered in class. But apparently, Amy would tell them something along the lines of, quote, well, my daughter took it and she got an A, so you should be able to do it, end quote. Amy Bishop officially worked at UAH from 2003 to 2010, but during this time, her career began to drift, to put it mildly. According to the article in The New Yorker, she stopped returning calls from family and friends back in Massachusetts, and she became prone to erratic and bizarre behavior. For a specific example, in 2009, she published a research article, one, in the International Journal of General Medicine. And in that article, she listed four co-authors, Jim, Lily, Thea, and Phaedra. Most of the immediate members of her family who had nothing to do with the research or the article whatsoever. Like y'all, in the world of academic research, that is some super weird shit. Anyway, also in 2009, Amy Bishop received word that she did not receive tenure. The committee had reviewed her bid and denied it because her research and publication records were scarce, just like they had warned her about. When such denials occur in higher education, it usually means that the person's contract with the institution will not be renewed. For Amy, that is exactly what the tenure denial meant. Her contract would expire at the end of the spring 2010 semester, and she would not start a new school year at UAH. According to an article in the New York Times, Amy Bishop's colleagues, including her department chair, urged her to look for another job. But instead, 
she decided to appeal the tenure committee's decision. One of her colleagues, assistant professor of psychology, Dr. Eric Seaman, said, quote, her attitude was not, I'm going to have to go find another job. It was more like, when are these idiots going to clear this up? End quote. In her appeal, she lobbied for a revote and alleged that the tenure review committee had made a mistake. She even hired a lawyer and filed a discrimination complaint against the university. But ultimately, that all went nowhere, and her appeal was denied as well in November of 2009. Months later, in the weeks leading up to the shooting of her colleagues on February 12, 2010, Amy Bishop began going to a firing range and plotting her revenge. That brings us to the day of the tragic shootings inside the conference room on the third floor of the Shelby Center for Science and Technology. By the time it was all over, Amy had shot six of her colleagues, killing three and severely injuring three others. The first person Amy shot and killed was Dr. Gopi Podila, a professor and chair of the Department of Biological Sciences. He was a 53-year-old biologist who was a leading figure in the world of plant and microbial science. Two of his colleagues described him as a, quote, wise, amiable man with a great smile and infectious laugh, end quote. Dr. Podila left behind a wife and two daughters. The second person Amy Bishop shot and killed was Dr. Maria Ragland Davis, a 50-year-old associate professor who specialized in plant pathology and biotechnology applications. According to her obituary, Dr. Davis's religious upbringing deepened her faith in and love for the Lord. She demonstrated her faith in her daily life through her commitment to her family, friends, students, and colleagues. Dr. Davis was survived by her husband and her three stepchildren. Finally, the third person who died at the hands of Dr. Amy Bishop was 52-year-old Dr. Adriel Johnson. Dr. Johnson was an associate professor working in cell biology and nutritional physiology research. His colleagues referred to him as a good university citizen who was always willing to work with any students who came his way and prepare them for degrees in healthcare and the medical field. He was most remembered for his exceptional ability to work with a diverse student population at the university, as well as youth in his community. He left behind two sons who he was actively involved with in the Boy Scouts as a troop leader. The other three surviving victims were identified as Professor Dr. Joseph Leahy, Assistant Professor Dr. Louise Cruz Vera, and Staff Aide Stephanie Monticciolo. Unfortunately, however, the University of Alabama Huntsville reported that Dr. Leahy, who survived being shot in the head by Bishop and made a full recovery, passed away in October of 2017 at the age of 58 from causes unrelated to the shooting. So let's pick up from where I left off at the very beginning of this story, all the way back in part one when Dr. Amy Bishop was met by campus police outside of the building and apprehended. As they were placing her inside the police cruiser, Amy told them, quote unquote, it didn't happen, they're still alive, as if she was completely disassociating from everything that just happened. Now I'll come back around to this because her defense team would eventually use this as evidence of insanity, but for now, let's continue on with the timeline. The next morning after she was arrested is when police in Alabama received the call from the Braintree police informing them about Amy's past. But as investigators in Alabama were digging more into Amy Bishop, not only did they learn about her brother's shooting and that bizarre IHOP incident, but they also discovered another suspicious occurrence that blew their minds. 
After Amy completed her doctorate, she continued working for Harvard off and on to conduct postdoctoral research for about 10 years. In 1993, while Amy was still working for Harvard and while she and Jim were living in that cottage on her parents' property, Amy and Jim were both questioned in a mail bomb plot against her postdoctoral advisor, Dr. Paul Rosenberg. According to the article in The New Yorker, they were questioned by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives after Rosenberg received a suspicious package in the mail. Apparently, Rosenberg went to open it, and he narrowly missed a trigger that was attached to a pair of six-inch pipe bombs. Amy and Jim were identified as suspects for two primary reasons. One, Amy and Rosenberg had recently had some sort of dispute, and two, the pair had discussed with friends about how a person could build a pipe bomb. Plus, Amy had previously given one of her friends, a man by the name of Brian Roach, 10 pounds of potassium permanganate as a joke on his birthday. Evidently, potassium permanganate is a substance that can be used to make explosives. That case, however, was never solved, and Amy and Jim were never officially charged with any crime. Then, let me tell you something else that happened in the days following her arrest in Alabama. You know that saying, stranger than fiction? Well, I'm about to give you a perfect example of it. According to the New York Times, campus police received a series of reports from several people with connections to the biology department. Their reports alleged that Dr. Amy Bishop may have booby-trapped the science building with a herpes bomb designed to openly spread the virus. You see, Amy had worked with the virus in a lab as a postdoc student, and she had even talked about how it could cause encephalitis. By the time the reports came in, however, campus police had already swept the building and every single room inside. The only thing they found was the 9mm handgun she used to shoot and kill her colleagues, as well as her bloodstained blazer. Those items were both found in the trash can of the women's bathroom on the second floor of the building. Shortly following the deadly shooting on campus, Amy Bishop's lawyer, Roy Miller, told the media that she remembered nothing about the shootings and that he had plans to have her evaluated by psychiatrists. But before she would officially be indicted for the murders in Alabama or go to trial, Amy's past came back to haunt her. You see, the shootings in Alabama sparked investigators back in Massachusetts to take a second look at the shooting death of her brother, Seth Bishop, over two decades before. And I feel like you can probably imagine why they reopened the case. If you remember, there was never really a full investigation conducted by law enforcement. Essentially, their final decision to close the investigation and rule it an accident rested primarily on Judy Bishop's word that it was all just a sudden and tragic accident. So the question that investigators in Braintree wanted to know in 2010 was why it was ruled an accident with very little investigation involved. And the Braintree chief of police in 2010, Paul Frazier, had a pretty good hunch as to why. Remember when I said that Judy Bishop joined the town meeting back in part one and became kind of the spokesperson for the town of Braintree? Well, just like politics can be messy now, the same was true in the 80s and the 90s, and probably for as long as we live in a society driven by political ideology. So anyway, you get my drift. According to Paul Frazier, the police chief in Braintree in 1986 was a man by the name of John Vincent Polio, whom, Frazier said, was probably the most powerful person in the town at the time. 
So Polio and Judy were acquaintances through their roles in the town. The night that Amy Bishop was arrested, a lieutenant had been booking her when he was informed that Polio had ordered her release. You see, Judy Bishop had arrived at the station and demanded to see the police chief as she shouted, Where's John V? Where's John V? After she spoke with the chief, that's when Amy was released to her parents and scheduled to be questioned at a later date. For years, Fraser said, he and others in the department speculated that it was a pure political decision to let Amy Bishop go because Polio had been quietly working with members of the town meeting in hopes of raising the mandatory retirement age of police officers to 65. Polio was in his early 60s at the time. Here's the thing, though. The ultimate decision to investigate and press charges was left up to the district attorney's office. But the DA at the time was never informed about everything that happened after the shooting. So he couldn't make like a full, accurate determination. He said he didn't know that Amy fled the scene, that she took the shotgun with her and brandished it in front of innocent civilians to demand a car, or that she had pointed it at a police officer and refused to drop it. So none of that information was ever included in the final report written by police that was ultimately given to the DA's office. After reopening the case in 2010, investigators in Braintree found that there had been probable cause to charge her with at least three additional crimes, including assault with a dangerous weapon, carrying a dangerous weapon, and unlawful possession of ammunition. Bill Delahunt, the then DA, said that if he would have known about Amy's actions at the Ford dealership, he would have charged her with assault, which would have likely triggered a psychiatric evaluation. In the new investigation, however, they were finding it quite difficult to make a case, particularly because most of the original evidence had not been retained. Even the shotgun she used vanished after it was sent to the lab for ballistic testing. Plus, remember, neighbors came in and cleaned up the scene. And to top it all off, the statute of limitations had run its course on all crimes Amy could be charged with, all of them except for murder. And to prove she murdered her brother, they needed to prove she had intentionally shot him with the weapon, which seemed like an impossible feat. That is, until they looked a little closer at photos taken of Amy's bedroom after the shooting. According to the New York Times, those photos revealed a newspaper article from the National Enquirer that Amy had in her room. The article focused on the shooting and murder of actor Patrick Duffy's parents. They were shot by two men who fled the scene and used their weapon to steal a getaway car. So investigators alleged that she may have used the article as some type of instruction manual for her actions after the shooting of her brother, which could prove intent. After this, the reopened case was referred to the grand jury, and on June 16, 2010, Dr. Amy Bishop was indicted on first-degree murder of her brother, Seth Bishop. William R. Keating the Norfolk DA in 2010, said they were choosing to move forward with the charges then as a way to redeem the original botched investigation. Keating said, quote, I really can't offer any explanations or excuses because there are none. Jobs weren't done, responsibilities weren't met, and justice wasn't served back then, end quote. However, Keating also said that if Amy were convicted in Alabama and given a heavy sentence for the three murders there, she would likely never stand trial in Massachusetts. Regardless, two days after the new indictment, Amy attempted to die by suicide in her Alabama jail cell. 
She used a blade of a safety razor to slit her wrist longitudinally. She collapsed in her cell, bleeding out profusely. She survived only because a prison guard discovered her and got her medical treatment in the nick of time. Her attorney, Roy Miller, explained, quote, another four minutes and she would have been dead, end quote. Speaking of lawyer, Miller was a court-appointed defense attorney assigned to represent Amy Bishop. According to the piece in The New Yorker, Miller spent 18 months preparing an insanity defense. At first, though, Amy asked for the death penalty because she didn't want to spend the rest of her life in a quote-unquote tiny little box. It was actually her parents, Sam and Judy Bishop, who convinced her otherwise by telling her that it could be years, decades even, before an execution would be carried through. So Amy Bishop entered a not guilty plea by reason of insanity. While preparing for the trial, the defense hired a series of prominent psychiatrists to evaluate Amy, but they all ended up being inconclusive. Like there was nothing to definitively conclude that she was insane at the time of the murders or that she suffered from any type of mental health disorders. Although Amy would tell her lawyer that she had paranoid schizophrenia and that she would sometimes hear voices. She also claimed that she didn't remember the shootings at all, much like she claimed that she didn't remember going to the Ford dealership with the shotgun after shooting Seth. When Amy was asked about this by a reporter, why it seemed like she had memory lapses that coincided with her worst crimes, she replied, quote, after traumatic events, people often remember nothing, end quote. So take that for what you will. Anyway, Amy's trial was originally scheduled for September 24th, 2012 for the murders in Alabama. But two weeks before it was slated to begin, Miller approached the prosecution and offered up a deal. Amy would plead guilty to capital murder in exchange for life without parole, which would take the death penalty off the table. Now, it's unclear why Amy had a sudden change of heart, especially since she was so adamant about receiving the death penalty. But what was clear is that her insanity defense wouldn't have set well with the jury. There was no evidence of insanity. Plus, she had lived a relatively functional and successful life. I mean, she earned a PhD and raised four kids without any major incident. So ultimately, the prosecution agreed to the deal. The question remained, however, if she would still face a murder trial back in Massachusetts. That question was answered a few days after her guilty plea. The Norfolk County DA released a statement announcing it would not seek her extradition because Massachusetts does not have a death penalty. In other words, she was already serving a life sentence without parole, which was the same maximum punishment that the prosecution would have sought in Massachusetts. Here's the thing, though. Amy Bishop let it be known, through a public defender representing her in Massachusetts, that she wanted to be tried for Seth's death. She always insisted it was an accident, and she wanted a chance to prove it once and for all. Her public defender, Larry Tipton, told the press, quote, She wants to use a trial to help demonstrate that she's innocent, end quote. And Amy herself said, quote, I want the truth to come out. I want that for me, for my parents, for closure, end quote. But her request for trial was never granted. Over the next several years, as Dr. Amy Bishop sat in prison for the murders of her colleagues, she launched several appears claiming she was mentally ill and didn't know what she was doing. In an appeal from 2015, she included a handwritten note referring to the shooting as a quote-unquote terrible crime and saying she was quote, terribly sorry for the victims and their families and my family, end quote. For the first time since she was convicted, she apologized for what she had done in that handwritten note. 
She also argued that her trial lawyer, Roy Miller, as well as her subsequent appellate attorneys were inadequate. And throughout her appeals, she blamed everything from schizophrenia to allergies to steroids for her crime, but never really taking full responsibility on her own. But remember Dr. Joseph Leahy? He was shot in the head by Amy, and he suffered a traumatic brain injury, resulting in blindness in one of his eyes. And miraculously, he lived to tell his story, and he made a full recovery. But he rejected her apology. Before he passed away from an unrelated cause in 2017, he said, quote, Dr. Bishop has ceased to exist in my world. She just doesn't exist anymore. Do I think she's truly sorry? I think she truly wants to get out of prison. That's what I think. End quote. Ten years after the horrible shootings at UAH, in 2020, WAFF 48 News ran an anniversary story to see where the surviving victims are now and how the university recovered from such a tragic event. Dr. Deborah Moriarty, who would have been Dr. Bishop's seventh victim if the gun hadn't have jammed, retired in 2020, but she took over as chair of the biology department after the incident. Moriarty told 48 News that if she had a chance to talk to Amy 10 years after the shootings, she would want her to know that she's moved on and she harbors no resentment in her heart. Moriarty explained, quote, I would want her to hear that I forgive her. I don't forgive what she did, but I can't hold any hate in me because then she would still be harming me. So I don't hate her. I hate what she did. And I think a part of me wants her to know that, end quote. Another surviving professor, Dr. Joe Ng, was not shot, but was in the conference room during the shootings. All these years later, he still suffers from PTSD. He doesn't go to the movies or enjoy the 4th of July holiday because the sounds he hears puts him right back in that conference room. So now he has dedicated his life to studying the mental health perspective and trying to understand it from a scientific angle. Today, in 2024, if you were to walk into the science building at UAH, you would see that the conference room where the shootings occurred has been converted into office space, and a new conference room sits across the hall. It is now surrounded by glass windows, so everyone inside can see out, and those outside can see in. A living garden was also planted on campus that serves as a daily reminder to act, not react, in cases where someone demonstrates unsettling behavior. In essence, the garden is a reminder for the UAH community to quote-unquote See something, say something. As for Amy's family, her husband Jim Anderson and their four kids, well, the two are still married for apparent financial reasons, to which the only explanation Jim offered was a simple, it's cheaper. And their four children are now adults, one even a teacher, but the family rarely visits the prison to see their wife and mother. Dr. Amy Bishop is now 58 years old. Now, that would normally be where this story ends, but I would be remiss if I didn't include the following information. Y'all, in a truly bizarre and ironic twist of fate, Dr. Amy Bishop's own son, Seth Anderson, died from a gunshot wound on April 19th, 2021. According to an article by Ashley Rimkus for AL.com, 20-year-old Seth Anderson was in a vehicle hanging out with a group of friends when 18-year-old Vincent Harmon allegedly shot Seth by accident. That night, the friends rushed Seth to a nearby hospital where he was pronounced deceased. Police initially arrested Harmon and charged him with murder for allegedly handling a gun recklessly and accidentally killing his friend. 
They allege that it was, quote, an act where Harmon was aware his actions could cause significant risk or bodily harm to another person, end quote. In 2022, Harmon applied for youthful offender status since he was 18 at the time of the shooting, which means the courts could seal the records of the case and the offender would face no more than three years behind bars if the status was approved. It's unknown whether youthful offender status was granted, though, because no information has been publicly released since August of 2022. That's when Harmon was officially indicted by a grand jury in Huntsville, and his charges were reduced to manslaughter for allegedly recklessly causing Seth Anderson's death. Like I said, though, no new information has been released about Harmon or his charges since the summer of 2022. But when or if more information does come out, I'll be sure to post an update to my social media. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of part two of Chronicle 65. And I know this one was a doozy with a lot of sad information and a bunch of twists and turns. So thank you for bearing with me through all of that. Um, And I sincerely hope that you guys did enjoy listening to the episode and, you know, hearing the story behind it. As always, be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Chronicles on both Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget, I launched my Patreon last week on the 1st, January 1st. As a New Year's gift to you guys this year, I'm so excited for 2024. I think it's going to be a great year for Campus Crime Chronicles. So go sign up for my Patreon where you can get additional stories, campus crime episodes, a campus crime sticker, all the good stuff. (laughs) Okay, y'all. Well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Tune in again next Monday for a new Chronicle.